following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, peace be with you. We're glad you're here. Amen. Thank you, Josh, for, for leading us this morning. Um, Amanda is it's out traveling for work for the next two weeks. She'll be here in the last, the third Sunday, but um, uh, we're, we're stepping up to the plate together. Um, one of the joys of singing with one another is uh, not only is the heart of worship sort of more or less restored to our minds and, and our own hearts as we remember what's important about our singing. And it's not the style of the singing or even the quality of the singing, but it's it's the truth of the words and the place of devotion from which our singing comes. Um, and just, just as a reminder, in church history, all throughout, uh, very little instrumentation was used, if any, for the longest time. And um, uh, so one of the things we hope to do regularly here at Foundation is, is enjoy a variety of different kinds of worship music, whether that's led by Amanda with a guitar or a piano or other instrumentation, or simply the only accompaniment we have is our own voice. Um, and so praise God that many of our own brothers and sisters around the world huddled in different places are doing the same thing, singing together. So it's a, it's a good and beautiful thing for us to hear one another sing the same truths um, that we proclaim together. So let's turn our attention now to the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. To the very last verse or the last chapter of the last gospel. John chapter 21, verse 25. John concludes with this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful now that we will consider many of the wondrous works of Jesus. We will remember and dwell and meditate on and celebrate that which we have read and studied over the last several months in John's Gospel. And we will consider the greater witness and testimony to Christ that your word stands. And we will think of the testimony of this church and of our own lives as true. Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth and suffered death that we may be sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace, and we ask now for this time to be fruitful, edifying, that by your Spirit, Lord, you would illuminate our own minds and hearts to receive and perceive, that we would walk faithfully in light of the truth proclaimed here by the Gospel of John and by the work of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us strength, boldness, and encouragement to stand on this truth, when we are most challenged. Lord, we ask, God, that above all, 
our hearts and our minds would stand in wonder and amazement and in humility before your word. For you, O Lord, have the words of life. We love you, we pray, and ask now you to speak, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of us are more avid readers than others. Certainly, all of us have, at some point, I'm trusting, read a book. Maybe you had to in school, and that was the last book you really remember reading and finishing from start to finish. And maybe the only book you read consistently is the Bible. But there are a few of us here that really, really love books. Read them a lot. Big books and small books and articles and journals. And we make much of the written word. We love to read. We love to be entertained by books. We love to learn. Some of us see that not only visually, but we love to read verbally. And so books are an important part of our lives. In fact, if you were to look at my budget, or dare I say, Bill's budget, you might truly see that he loves books. And praise God for books. Buddy? What's the longest book that you've ever read, though? Maybe it's a chapter book. Maybe it's a series of books. I did a quick study. By that I mean I googled what the longest book ever published was. Now, this is apparently a really hot topic. Depends on how you count the length of books by pages or by chapters or by volumes or by words or even characters. But here are a couple leading contenders. The French author wrote in English, the word would be, In Search of Lost Time, Marcel Proust. And this contains an estimated 9,600,009 characters. Or in other words, 1,200,000 and some odd words. Uh, not to be outdone, of course, Mark Leach wrote a book, 17.8 million words. That is 10,710 pages. Let me put that in perspective. The entire Harry Potter series only has 1,084,000 words. The Lord of the Rings, only 576,559 words. So we're talking about a lot of words. Sometimes it takes years to, to work through something like the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever volume, and then you think about some of these other great tomes, and then you wonder if anyone would ever have the time to truly read them from start to finish. I think what's interesting here is, is John's ending of his gospel, where he says, I suppose if everything that Jesus ever did or said were to be written down, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. He says that if someone were to actually undertake the effort to write down every word Jesus spoke and every act and deed that Jesus performed, it would outstrip every other author. John is, of course, I think, exaggerating, mostly. 
But notice that we're ending here on just a single verse, which when opened up is actually speaking of large, even infinite proportions. We're speaking of Jesus, who we know and John has now labored to teach us is the Son of God. Recall in chapter 1, the Word who was with God in the beginning, this pre-incarnate, pre-existent Word of God who is inexhaustible. And so if anything were to ever be written of Jesus from start to finish, well, how could a work ever be finished? For Jesus had no beginning, and he will have no end. John, of course, is speaking specifically of Jesus' ministry here on earth and of the many things that were left unrecorded. But even behind this is the Christological statement about Jesus as God. That, that point that he's been laboring to make, which we see in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. He's labored to make clear that Jesus is divine. And so to speak and to think about Jesus is to really think of an inexhaustible supply of the revelation of God. And so John in one sense, really isn't kidding. He's not exaggerating that if we were to record all of the words, all of the deeds of Jesus, the whole world would not contain such a volume. But why just one verse? We spent part of the summer preaching a sermon on an entire book of the Old Testament. And now we've zoned in so closely to this one particular verse to end John's letter. Well, I think it's profitable for us to conclude with John on this single verse in the same way that he began his gospel. That is, with the Word. Notice how he begins in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to tell us that this Word is Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Word who is Jesus and so one point he makes here, and, and this is not exaggerated, is that Jesus is the inexhaustible revelation of God. He is the Logos of God. When God has determined to disclose himself to man, the form in which he is done, that self-disclosure is Jesus. God has revealed himself in many ways at many times. First, to our fathers, the prophets. But now, the author of Hebrew writes, he has revealed himself perfectly, finally, and completely in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. Colossians tells us that he is the fullness of God. So Jesus, as God's word, must be read, as it were with eyes of faith, and our whole lives must be to the undertaking of the study of the Word of God. So we would read and study not just the record of Jesus' words and His ministry and the deeds that He performed, but in, in really, truthfully, all of the endless commentary of devotion and wonder that such a life would incite. This is why Christians should read not only God's Word, but those who have read God's Word and have delighted in it, and so wish to share that delight with others. Reading good Christian literature and works 
both a fiction and nonfiction, helps us go deeper into the true source of God's Word, which helps us point to Christ. But the reality is, is this, and I think this is John's point. We don't have that kind of volume. John knows the world couldn't contain it, and you and I don't have time to read that kind of work. We wouldn't be able to do anything that Jesus commanded us to do if we had a volume, and no doubt many wars and much more blood would be spilled over that than has already been spilled. We have John's Gospel along with the others, and of course we have the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we do not have this large world-spanning volume here that he mentions would be necessary if one were going to actually undertake the effort of recording everything Jesus taught and done. So what then, friends, does John intend for us to do as he ends his letter? What does he intend? This isn't, on the face of it, a theologically significant way to end. He's already said as much about the truthfulness of his testimony, that, that what he has said and the record he bears about Christ is true. But I think not wanting to end with his own testimony or about the truthfulness of his own words, but actually wants to end on the consideration of Jesus as the word, he pens this final statement that Jesus, as the inexhaustible, pre-existent Word of God is the one truly worthy of our devotion, of our study, of our consideration. So what does John actually intend for us to do? I think he intends for us to take what he has written, this gospel and the others, and to receive it as the true testimony of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, to actually believe it. That's what he wants, to believe in the, G, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And by believing, he says, to have life in his name. That is the center of the bullseye for John. And so this morning, as together we conclude John's gospel and our study of this gospel, my aim, I pray, is to help you see the sufficiency of Scripture. Particularly, to see the sufficiency of Scripture as everything that God intends for you to know about Himself and about Jesus and about salvation. That God's Word is sufficient for you to know God, to understand who Christ is, and has made clear to us the way of salvation. And also I want to make clear to us the vital necessity then that Scripture plays in your faith, without which it would wither on the vine and die. Scripture, I propose, is necessary to your faith, both in the sense of your saving faith, what you must know and understand to be saved, and in the sustaining of your faith, how you continue on and are kept by God and His Word. Without God's Word and the source of God's Word, Christ Himself, we would have no hope of sustaining faith. So that's my aim this morning and John's aim for us, to consider the sufficiency of God's Word and the necessity of God's Word. First, consider 
that God's word is sufficient for faith. God's word is sufficient for faith. Really, the argument here that John makes at the end of his letter is this, that, that a greater preponderance of evidence or of miracles or signs, preponderance, a greater weight in volume, I don't know, uh, that might be a, a word that I know in my brain, I don't know actually how to define, a, a greater wealth of information, more words about Jesus and his miracles, wouldn't actually be any more effective in leading you to salvation than what has already been said. There's no need to list greater miracles and more works and more teachings about Jesus to demonstrate the sonship of Christ. What was John's point? Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. You should believe in Him. And he has made that point clear. So no other words, no other teaching is necessary for you to believe. Would it be helpful? Would we like it? Sure. But there is no greater need. What has been put into John's heart and mind under the inspiration of the Spirit, God intends for us to be sufficient. There is no other words necessary to demonstrate the sonship of Christ. John's gospel and the Bible you hold in your hands is sufficient for faith. Again, saving faith, how you come to know Christ savingly, and sustaining faith, how you are kept by God in faith. The question, of course, that this begs, I think, is why didn't God give more evidence of Jesus' deity? of his divine sonship. This question has been asked by many, both Christians and skeptics alike. Wouldn't more of Christ's words and teaching just save a lot of headache and trouble? Wouldn't we have to stop fighting about some of the endless questions about what the Bible really teaches if we can just go to Jesus' words about what kind of this or that is better? Certainly, our own faith would be strengthened just by having more of Jesus' words. Peter tells Jesus, where else can I go? Oh Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We know that what Jesus says is true and right. It comes from the Father. And so we should say more. I need more word. I need more Jesus' teaching. I can't do it on my own. The clearer he makes it for me, the easier it is because I'm a sinner. I need more word. And we should amen that. But then we should stop and ask, why? Why don't I have more word? Why is these 66 books the only ones we have? The only thing that we consider the revelation of God to his people for all of eternity, for all of church history. Why is it only these words and not more or less do we consider what God wants us to know? Yes, we can turn our attention to other men and women who have written volumes upon volumes as commentary and out of devotion from these words, but they are not God's words. This is God's words. And so why? Why wouldn't God just give us more? Wouldn't he make it easier? How about a biblical concordance in the back? Some theological terms so that we could have glossed over some of the heresies and solved a lot of disputes along the way. Well, there's no easy question to that. Really, the truth is, only God knows. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, tells us that the secret things 
pertain to God's secret will, but only the things he has revealed are sufficient for us. So we must conclude, as John's letter does, that what we have here, for whatever reason, according to God's good and sovereign purposes, is sufficient for our faith. And we must believe then that if it is not, he would then give us greater revelation. Two things I want to say then about God's word. First, it is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That's what Peter says. And he goes on to speak about how men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these scriptures, both the Old and New Testament. His divine power through the Spirit, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In matters that concern the life of faith and the life of a Christian, and to all matters that concern godliness, He has granted to us everything sufficient for those things. How? Through the knowledge of Him who has called us according to His own glory and excellence. How do we come to know the glory and excellence of Christ? It is by beholding the beauty of Christ in His Word. It is by looking to the Gospels who record the account of His life, of His death and His resurrection, and by reading the Apostles' words which form the foundation of the very church. All things that pertain to life and godliness include every question and matter of theology that is necessary for us to obey God and honor Him in our life. There is no question that we can simply shrug at that is directly tied to our life of obedience and godliness. If God intends for us to obey, to be faithful, to live righteously so others might see His glory, He has given us sufficient revelation in His Word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's Word is sufficient for your life, Christian. It is sufficient that you may come to know and receive the knowledge of Him who calls you to His glory and excellence. It is sufficient for you to answer the questions, the even difficult questions, about which job you may take or which woman you may marry, or husband you may begin to date. It tells you the difficult questions about what you should believe, about what church is faithful. It answers all such questions about what is right to teach our children and from what we should protect them from. It is sufficient so that we can learn how we should view and read books and movies and interact with culture. It is sufficient even to guide us as we vote for presidents and school administrators. It is sufficient in all of these things, from the greatest and the largest questions down to the smallest. God's Word is sufficient for these things. And were it not, we would expect that God would continue to reveal Himself today. But God's Word is sufficient. It is most sufficient because it has contained the full revelation of Christ as he has deemed necessary for salvation and for sustaining. Not only this, but John's gospel also sits among the company of many other witnesses to Christ and to his glory within the larger and complete 
canon of Scripture. That is the complete scope from Genesis to Revelation. This is the work of God has disclosing Himself to His people. It is here and it is complete. And John sits here in the midst of it. So John's witness and testimony sits next to that of Matthew's and Mark's and Luke's. It sits next to Acts, who tells us of Jesus' work and sending the Spirit to go and reach and help the church, this new and infant body, come to fruition and take over the world. It's sufficient in Paul's own letters to the churches as he establishes them on his own missionary journeys and encourages them in their faith in a persecution. John's gospel is one of many testimonies and witnesses to Christ and his glory that sits within the larger scope of the canon of God's word. And so we can know that not just with John, but with all the other great cloud of witnesses, it's sufficient for faith. But it's not only sufficient, God's word is efficient. God's word is both sufficient for faith and it is efficient. Consider Isaiah chapter 55, and you'll see what I mean. 55 verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is efficient in its purpose. It may take time to come to full fruition, but God's word does not return void. He says, it shall accomplish the purpose and the thing for which I sent it, God says through Isaiah. Meaning, the word isn't going to fall on deaf ears. It will do its work. Though many will come to not believe the word. Those whom God has sent the word into their heart to bear fruit of righteousness and salvation, it will accomplish it. And so together with this work of the Spirit, the personal illumination of the Spirit to help us open up the Scriptures, they not only become clear to us, but they actually serve as the foundation of our faith. And not as a supplement to our faith, not as something that stands separate from our faith, but as the very foundation of it, like a, a vital organ without which our faith would wither and it would, it would die. And so even in one letter or, or in one gospel or even just in one verse, God's word is effectual. It does not return to God empty. God's word is effectual. <clears throat> what God can and does do with few words, especially when they are his own. Consider Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. <clears throat> God said, let it bring forth vegetation. Get a bottle of water from somebody, please. Genesis chapter 1 records for us the creation narrative of God speaking and the powerful working of His Word into creation. Etc. 
God's word is effectual not just in creation, but turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. I think it's worth setting our eyes on this. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel was a prophet sent by God to warn of judgment, <clears throat> to preach to Israel repentance. Ezekiel chapter 37, just the first 10 verses there. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. This is a vision Ezekiel has. And he led me around among the bones, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. That is, they were old. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put, your breath, put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the, the power of God's word demonstrated here to a prophet of God who is to go to Israel and preach and proclaim the same words that God would give to him to Israel. The effect of which that life would come into the dry bones of Israel who had wandered from God, who had disobeyed God and rebelled against Him, and now is finding their, their enmity with the Lord, who is sitting under judgment of God. Ezekiel was to go and to preach repentance and judgment, and to preach that they shall live by the words of God, and they will have breath and life. So the power of God can be seen not only in creation, as God Himself speaks and the world is created and comes forth, but here even to, to men who can receive life through His Word. But not just spiritual life, real physical life. You know in John chapter 11, Jesus called who from the grave? Lazarus. And He does this with a few words. Not an incantation or a special formula. He says, Lazarus, come out. That's all He says. And He comes and he walks forward. Friends, what is your attitude to Scripture? Do you understand that the Bible you hold in your hands contains the power to give life to dry bones, the power and efficacy to your faith, which is wavering under pressure, to even dead men would come to life when you seek and you find in the Scriptures the very work and word of Christ to you? Or is it simply a burden? An ancient document 
that contains no real entertainment. Some sage advice. If you mind the Proverbs, you may find some helpful things to live by. And even Jesus himself gives a good guidance to our lives. But really, the Bible is a bit antiquated. And I'd rather listen to the latest and greatest psychology. I'd rather think about what others are teaching me rather than what Scripture teaches. No, an attitude like this denies the power of God's Word. It denies the work of God in speaking creation into existence from nothing. It denies the power of God to give life to dry bones. It denies the power that Jesus himself has called Lazarus out of the dead. He has been risen himself and now calls us. Examine, friends, your attitude to scriptures, to the Bible. If you are unconvinced that there is power here, how little you may seek to find God there for help in time of need. The same, by the way, can be said of prayer. Friends, I'm convinced we do not pray because we do not believe in the power of prayer. Taking together God's word and the gift of praying to God opens up a storehouse of power that we cannot fully understand. And I don't mean this in a way that we get to wield God's power for our own sake, but rather that we step into the favor of God whereby He can work and restore us to His righteousness and faithfulness. That He uses our lives and shapes our lives by His Word in a way that we honor and glorify Him above all things. We should read and we should pray because we are convinced of the power of such things. So John makes it clear that though there are many, many other things that could be written down, that he could have written down, and he could have shared with us for, for our benefit, what he has recorded is already wonderfully sufficient for us, for saving faith and for knowledge and life and enjoy. This is, this is enough to know what he has labored for us to know. But what I want to do now is just briefly review then what John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has revealed about Jesus, which he deems sufficient for saving faith. What has he taught us? If he's not adding any more about Jesus, what has he said that is sufficient for such faith? I think I have six. This is by no means exhaustive. First, John teaches us that Jesus is the divine, pre-existent Word of God. He starts right out the gate. We've read it already. In the prologue of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 18, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this prologue sets the entire Christological theme for the Gospel of John. It does so in terms of of the Old Testament, and in terms of Jesus as God and as man, because that Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He takes on the, the this assumption of human nature, and He becomes a man. He comes into the world that He created, and it describes, this, this prologue describes the, the sweep of Jesus' story. He begins with a pre-existent Word, who is God in the beginning, 
And he proceeds into this incarnate word who takes on flesh, who is Jesus, the Messiah. And he goes forth into the prologue, concluding with the designation of this resurrected God-man as the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So John is teaching from the very first words of his gospel that Jesus is the divine, preexistent word of God. Secondly, John has taught us that Jesus is God's Son. The familial relationship Jesus has to the Father is one of sonship. Though, yes, we speak of Jesus as God, John simultaneously speaks as Jesus as distinct from God, namely from God the Father, and as we learn from the Spirit. Now, the relationship Jesus describes that he has with God is one of Son and Father. In fact, the gospel speaks of the Son of God 29 times and refers to God as Father over 100 times. So you can see the the theme here that John is intending for us to understand about Jesus. Not only is he the divine Word of God, but in assuming human nature, he has, in, in a very real sense, become the Son of God. Or John 3, 16 the only begotten Son of God. In fact, on one such occasion where Jesus prays to God as his Father, the Jews become greatly upset and they rightly understand the implications of that kind of rhetoric and that kind of speaking. In John chapter 5, verse 18, says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own Father, and this is why it's important, making himself equal with God. The Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees rightly understand that when Jesus claimed divine sonship of the Father, that he was equating himself with God. He would continue to do this through the rest of the gospel. So John has already taught us that he is the divine, that Jesus is the divine pre-existent word of God that Jesus is the Son of God. Thirdly, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, particularly of the Old Testament. Many psalms and prophets are quoted in the Gospel of John or referenced or alluded to in the Gospel of John to teach us that Jesus is the Messiah who is prophesied of old and has now come and is the one that we have been waiting on. In fact, just a quick search of the use of the word Scripture here in the Gospel of John reveals that Jesus' ministry was to a T, consistent with all the prophecies and promises of a coming Messiah. John labored to teach us that Jesus not only is God and is the Son of God, but is the Messiah that came from God to save and redeem His people. Again, John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Notice Jesus says that all the scriptures that the Pharisees pretend to know actually are about him. And in their refusal to come to Jesus for life, they effectively have misunderstood the scriptures themselves. So Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. Fourth, Jesus is the Lamb of God. This is a clear theme throughout scripture and throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 29, 
speaking of John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Notice John here recognizes, John the Baptist recognizes the the pre-existent nature of Christ, but also the incarnate nature of Jesus before him. And he points to him and says, this is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, referring, of course, to the Passover Lamb that was celebrated first in, in, in Exodus as the Lord commanded his people to sacrifice a lamb and to put the blood of that lamb on their doorpost on the very last plague that was visited upon Egypt that they may be rescued and redeemed and delivered from their people. Even in chapter 19, later as Jesus hung on the cross, John makes pains to record that none of Jesus' bones were broken as a reference to the, to the Pascal lamb, whose no, no bones were to be broken in its sacrifice. There's a clear connection here to the Passover lamb between Jesus and John's gospel. Jesus is the lamb of God. Fifth, Jesus is alive. This is what we learn. This is the capstone of John's gospel that Jesus is alive. He's clear that Jesus was risen from the dead after three days. And his telling of the interactions here with Mary Magdalene and the disciples and Thomas especially, this is all of chapter 20, they're all clear demonstrations that Jesus no longer lies in the tomb. He no longer is buried among the dead, but that he has risen and he has conquered the grave. Jesus is alive, not dead. Lastly, John's Gospel teaches us that Jesus is king. Though, yeah, perhaps mockingly by Pilate, John highlights there the irony of the title Jesus receives on his way to the cross, King of the Jews. But John co-opts this. He knows that Pilate speaks truer than he knows. That King of the Jews really is a declaration of Jesus' true authority and lordship over the world. Pilate may have meant it as a slight to Jesus or as a slight to the Jews, but John knows this to be true. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is, is King. But Jesus' kingdom, we're taught, is not of this world, he says to Pilate, but rather is established in the hearts of his true disciples first, who recognize and submit to his lordship. So the kingship of Jesus is traced from the very beginning of his lordship over creation to becoming one with his creation, only to be mocked as the king of the Jews, but vindicated as the true Lord over all things. Listen, this is just a, a quick sketch from the Gospel of John that he has labored to provide for us. This selective record shows that this is a sufficient account of who Christ is that you can believe and in believing have eternal life. It presents to his readers and to us a, a high Christology. What other conclusion are we to draw from John's gospel if we are to take it seriously except that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do we demand more evidence from John? Dare I say, if we are reading John's gospel and we demand more evidence, no evidence would ever suffice in that case. But John knows that he has been led to record it precisely what 
God has deemed it necessary and sufficient for such things. And so that first point here is that God's word is sufficient for faith. The last idea, and more briefly, is that the world indeed is insufficient for God's glory. God's word is sufficient for faith, but the world is insufficient for glory. In fact, the world, to John, is too small a stage indeed for the glory of Christ, with which it will soon come to be filled. Now the world is robed in sin, but soon it will be robed in righteousness. We get a picture of the glory of God that's going to come and visit upon the earth in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. You may be familiar with this passage. She receives a vision, Isaiah does, and it says that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The picture of God's glory filling the earth is a picture that is to come in the fullness of time. One that is to be perfected and pictured in Christ and who in time will come to take a real fulfillment in Christ's kingdom here upon earth. The whole earth is to be full of the glory of God. But as it stands now with sin and death, this is not a world full of the glory of God, but mired by sin and depression. But Jesus comes, one, as full of glory and of grace, to begin to break into the darkness as the light of the world. God cannot be contained by neither space nor time. His glory does not fit into any box. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so when John says that I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He's speaking not only of the volume itself in a hyperbolic sense, of Jesus' record of life and thoughts and teachings, but actually of the glory that Jesus fully pictures forth as the greatest and fullest and most complete revelation of God. The image and the radiance of the glory of God cannot be contained by the world. The world is too small a stage. Neither time nor space could contain it because God's glory cannot be filled by a box or by a temple. It fills the whole earth and beyond. The point here is that when we consider through God's word, when we study and we teach and we listen and we exhort and encourage, when we consider through God's word the person and work of Christ, we are considering meditating on the glory of God, you see, the glory of God itself. 
I'm going to read a little more fully there in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Jesus, who is the glory of God, is the one we behold in the scriptures. He is the one who reveals to us God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness. He is the one to which our hearts are to be drawn as we consider God's kindness to Israel in the Old Testament, God's provision for Isaac and Abraham on the the mountain, God's favor and provision for all good things, are to be seen ultimately as fulfilled in Christ. The promise to Abraham for the blessing of the world is fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we consider Jesus in his word, we are considering the glory and the majesty of God. And so the goal is to be affected by the word as we read it. To be experientially growing in the knowledge of God through his word. But we're not often. I think there's a few reasons why that may not be the case. If you've ever read the scripture and found difficulty in feeling this kind of affection, it may be one that your motives and assumptions, even misconceptions, are all off and wrong. That your motive to read the Bible maybe gets some sort of blessing out of it. Or it may be to simply be seen as a greater student of the Bible to lord your knowledge over others. Maybe you have false assumptions and misconception about what the Bible really is. You've not fully comprehended that this is the word of the Lord. Perhaps you've come to the Bible and felt a lackluster response because there's little prayerlessness, there's little prayerfulness surrounding your reading. You read it coldly or irreverently, not humbly, praying that God through His Spirit may open your eyes to see and to know and understand. Indeed, you may come not really fully knowing how to read the Bible. Though you can read the words on the page, how do you make sense of the different kinds of stories and the different genres of the Bibles? How do you go from one historical book in Genesis, which seems to be almost beyond belief, to some of the other stories of conquest? How do you jump into poetry? How do you read the Gospels or the Epistles or the books like Daniel and Revelation? All of these faulty readings and techniques can go in to create all sorts of different outcomes about how we read the Bible, not the very least heretical assumptions and conclusions. Friends, to be truly affected by the Word of God, you must make it your mission now to become students of the Bible. And I don't mean scholarly, intellectual students. I mean, I mean disciples, which is where the word truly comes from. Disciples of Jesus' teaching. You must humbly submit yourself to the teaching of Christ in His Word. You must come to it humbly in prayerfulness. And you must give yourself to the study of it. That is, in the learning of how to read. In the discussion and of the sharpening that takes place between brothers and sisters. Because the truth is, if you come to the Word 
and you are unchanged by it, and you do this over and over and over again, though you may be diligent in your study over and over again, you will not be changed radically. You may grow in the external knowledge or in the intellectual knowledge of the Bible, but only truly submitting yourself to the Word of God will transform our heart. So the, the world, as John says, could not contain the works of Christ. He reminds us in the very beginning of his gospel that Christ nevertheless, nevertheless comes into the world. Paradoxically, Jesus, who is uncontained by time and space, allows himself to be contained by human nature. He takes on flesh. He takes up residence in the world, in that same world in which he has created with his own word and upon which he has entered into and taken on the very nature of, now finds fault with him, rebels against him, and crucifies him. This is the word of Christ. It is God who gives life and breath, but it is God's creation who takes the life and breath from God himself in Christ. This is the paradox of John's gospel, the contrast that he's so well known for, that Jesus is the word of God who has contained his inexhaustible nature by flesh. But in his death, he provides for us atonement for sin. And upon his resurrection, he validates and confirms for us the sacrifice he has made on the cross so that we may come to him by faith and receive all of the unending joys that flows from him as word. So friend, brother, sister, know that Christ speaks to you through his word. He calls you to himself. The Father draws you to Christ so that you may know, as John says, that Jesus is God's son. And that you may believe on this truth and that believing have life in his name. Let us not neglect the study and the work of the word because it is the word that goes forth into our lives and our lives into the world for the glory of God. John has sent his readers on a mission to know Christ, to know him crucified, and so be students and disciples of his teaching and word that our own mission into the world points people to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, if John could not, out of the inspiration of the Spirit, record all things that Jesus has done, surely this sermon itself can do but little justice to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. But I pray that our hearts would be so affected by your word, both now and into the end of our own lives, that we would give ourselves to it forcefully, become students of it tirelessly, that we would know it, memorize it, study it, prepare ourselves for the reading of it, and take it seriously. And though we could never fully exhaust the beauties and the riches of God's Word, which are unfathomable, that you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Your Word is sufficient and though this world was not sufficient for the containing of your glory, you became one of us in Christ so that we may see your glory, behold your glory as of the only Son of God, and that by believing 
you have given us the right to become children of God. And we await for the day, O Lord, when your glory truly fills the earth. And though we see now in a mirror dimly, we long to see face to face. We long to behold your glory and sing, holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of his glory. We pray as always in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.